Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. Today, we are discussing the relationship between norms and democratic values during times of crisis. Politics has always been eventful in America, but it appears especially so in recent decades. From 9-11 and the war on terror to the 2008 financial crash and the economic damage it caused in the lives of millions, Americans have first-hand knowledge of the way in which crises can change how the government operates. Amidst an extraordinary pandemic and another economic freefall, with a polarizing figure in the White House and elections on the horizon, Americans are facing once again a critical moment for our nation and our government. What will our politics look like when the current crisis is finally over? How should we understand the consequences it could have for our democratic values? And what exactly is a norm? These are some of the questions that we will be asking on this week's episode. My name is James Wallner, and I am a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Lee Drutman. I'm a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. Well, hey, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, hey. Good day. Well, I have some exciting news before we get started. Yep. Before we get started here, I, I want to announce that you can now find our podcast, this podcast, Politics in Question, on Lyceum, an app that hand curates educational shows and offers a platform to chat with other listeners. And download the app by visiting lyceum.fm. And seriously, go there and download it because there is some premium content here. And you can listen to our shows. You can hear the brilliant wisdom of, of Lee Drupman and, and Julia Azari. And you can just enlighten your outlook on the world. That's exciting, don't you think, guys? Yeah, I'm going to. Can, can we pause so, while I do that right now? Absolutely. Okay. Great. Are you tapping it out? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing it. Very nice. Julia, do you have it on your phone yet? I don't, but I will download it as soon as uh, as, as we get off this uh, podcast recording. I, I can't multitask that well at this point. Well, I, I have to find my Apple ID password in order to download the app, but I will as soon as I do find the password. Well, the question we are asking today is, is the normative and moral foundation of our democracy crumbling beneath our feet? And our inspiration for this question came from two of Julia's recent articles on norms and democratic values and the Trump presidency. And I would also add a third article, and all of these will be up on the show notes from 2018 on the role of norms in politics. And I think it would be it would really help our listeners uh, for Julia to briefly summarize the argument she makes in, in both pieces. But before we do that, I want to take everyone's temperature on this question. So what say you, Lee? Is the normative and moral foundation of our democracy crumbling beneath our feet? Crumbling? Hmm. I'm not so sure. But it's definitely shifting. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that makes this moment so exciting and terrifying is that we've opened up a lot of very fundamental questions about how our democracy works. I think a lot of questions that felt settled 10 years or so ago. And I think we're having some really big conversations about what you're allowed to say, what you're allowed to do. And in some ways, I think that's good because it opens up a lot of creative new possibilities. But I think there's a danger because when we open up this conversation uh, and there's no norms, what can we all agree on, right? I mean, democracy depends on a shared set of values and a shared set of fairness. uh, And those get codified into norms over time. But when those break down and we don't have that shared sense of what we all are okay with, uh, I think there's a tremendous possibility for chaos. And sometimes chaos turns out okay, and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I think it's certainly clear that a lot of the old norms weren't working well for a lot of people. And so they, they had to go away. And the question is, what happens now? Julia? So I think there's a couple things going on here. Um, one of the things is that norms are, are kind of having a moment, right? We're, we're talking about them a lot. And in that way, I think this is building on some research by a couple of uh, law professors, Josh Chaffetz and David Posen. Um, they have this piece where they argue that like kind of talking about a norm does help preserve it. So in that sense, I think Norms are having this this kind of key moment. At the same time, you know, obviously they're being violated in really 
um, clear and central ways. And it's, I think, to lay out what we're, what we're really talking about here when we talk about norm violations, a lot of this comes down to the ways in which the Trump administration has not followed a, a typical script for, um, for a presidential administration. You know, we're like, so we're recording this on May 20th, 2020, and there's just been, um, you know, there's just been this set of, I don't know if I would even call it discussions, right? There, it's just not going to happen. The unveiling of the White House portrait, Trump and Obama aren't going to follow the usual transition of power script there with that. Um, you know, a lot of these ceremonial norms around, um, around peaceful transitions of power, around acknowledging political opponents have, I guess, to put it very mildly, gone by the wayside. I think that that's, you know, some of this is important, some of it's not. And that's one of the distinctions that I'll talk about a little bit more when I describe my pieces, which is that what's going on here is these norms violations that come down to failure to publicly respect important values like the rule of law and legitimate opposition. And we see that not just with um, Trump, you know, with other political actors. And it's certainly been a point of contention between the two parties with a lot of accusations that, I mean, that the Republicans don't respect these values anymore. And that's, to me, that's sort of what the state of the discourse is. And it also links back to an episode we did a few weeks back um, with with Emily Sidnor about civility, right? There, so there, there are these sort of norms about like how you talk about and to your political opponents. And some of that is, I think, critical to democracy. And some of that is, is not. And that's, you know, that's sort of how I how I conceptualize that question. So I'm not entirely sure where we are, but we're certainly at a shifting point, as Lee points out. Well, I think both of those are both of your points are very insightful, and and they help orient my own understanding of this topic. I I think my answer, my short answer, is no, but yes in a different way. Maybe that's probably the worst answer I've ever given on this podcast. But um, I, I don't think the the fact of changing norms or even changing values is in and of itself destructive of our kind of democratic politics of, of its moral and normative foundation. Because there, when you change norms, you're typically replacing them with new norms. And the other side of the coin of norm destruction is norm creation. And the same thing with uh, democratic values, they shift over time. I mean, I think there's some core ones, obviously, and you can't shift those and we'll talk about them and still kind of be a democracy. But overall, I'm not worried so much about the the, the fluctuation we see in norms, I may wish it would be different. I may wish the tenor of our politics uh, had a different uh, pitch to it, if you will. But is it destructive? I'm not, I'm not so sure. But I think what is destructive or what, what illuminates an underlying problem here that is kind of crumbling the foundation of our political order is the way in which we react to those changing norms and changing values. And of course, I imagine this has always been consistent in our politics, but to, and I'm not being alive in the past when we've gone through fluctuations like this, I, I don't know. But today it seems to me that there's this hypersensitivity to any kind of change in norms or any kind of change in values. And that that sensitivity illuminates, I think, an unwillingness to kind of allow the kind of political process to play out. And, and, and it and it illuminates our tendency to delegitimize our political opponents uh, by saying that they're outside of the sphere of acceptable political conflict. So again, my answer, I think, is no, but yes, in a different way, maybe. But before we get into these, this, this question and really dig into it here, Julia, will you give our listeners a brief overview of your argument in, in, in both of these fabulous articles, as well as maybe your earlier 2018 article on norms? And I know you've already touched on some of it in your answer to our kind of big meta question here, but if you could kind of delve into it a little bit more, I think that would be very helpful for, for Lee and I and for our listeners. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been writing a lot lately about norms, which wasn't necessarily something that I set out to do um, this year or even at the beginning of of the pandemic and, and quarantine period, but it's turned out to occupy a lot of my thinking and time. I kind of got started thinking about this in the realm of public writing in 2018 when everyone was talking about norms, but I felt like these conversations really lacked nuance. So I wrote a piece about norms at 538 in the, um, in the spring of 2018 about how really informal rules 
are are just that right they're they're kind of unwritten rules that everybody in the political system broadly understands and then you face some kind of informal sanction for violating them but there's nothing magical about them they can be good or bad for democracy and what really matters is is democratic values so i pointed out in the in this 2018 piece i pointed out there's some core democratic values that have been at that point had been kind of core um points of contention around the trump administration so Respect for separate institutions, um, so respecting the autonomy of states in a federalist system, respecting Congress as a separate and co-equal branch of, of government. You know, a lot of times those transgressions by the Trump administration are, are talked about in terms of norms, and that's all well and good, but it's not really like, oh, this is just, this is outside of the realm of what we normally do. It's this is a core aspect of how American politics are designed. And the notion that the president is not the boss of Congress, is not the boss of the governors, is really critical to the institutional structure. Um, the second one is respect for legitimate opposition, which is a democratic value that I think transcends the American context. I think the separate institutions has some very particular meanings in, in the U.S. Respect for legitimate opposition is, a, is you know non-negotiable that the other party, your political you know, rivals within your party, the media, that all of these sorts of, of forms of pushback against power are not to be delegitimized. And you know, that's a really tricky one for the presidency because of the immense power and influence of the office. And presidents are not always you know, they're not always careful about this in, in private. Obviously presidents get angry when um when criticized in the media their you know partisan tempers run high sometimes within parties rivalry runs runs high but kind of like in public there needs to be at least a show of respect for that the notion that there will be different views in politics and that power will be held to account and so i see that as a very serious violation of democratic values and then finally separating public from private which is another another area where you know, the Trump administration has consistently run afoul of some of the ways we understand what, you know, what public resources are for. That, you know, using the office of the presidency for private gain, not divesting from, from business interests, the use of Trump-owned properties for government business. This is not just, oh, you know, that we haven't done it this way and, like, our... Our, our colleague uh, Brendan Nyan likes to tweet about Jimmy Carter had to um, you know, get rid of the family peanut farm. And it's not just about, well, Jimmy Carter did this differently. It's about this is a critical value in, in a democracy that you don't engage in private gain using your public office or your public resources. So that was my that was my take in 2018 was that the democratic values and norms are different and we need to be really clear about what the underlying values are that are being endangered. I, I recently updated that piece for 538 in the in the pandemic context. And I addressed a much wider range of of issues there. Um, I looked at Joe Biden's kind of relatively low profile, Trump's press conferences, and then this big question of how to hold elections in a in a pandemic, which we've also discussed a lot on the show. And essentially what I argued is sometimes sometimes following some standard norms. So the idea that Biden would kind of stay out of the public eye, uh, not try to undermine the administration, the idea that Trump would hold the, at the time when I wrote this, he was still holding these uh, daily press conferences, communicating with the public. And then um, like with regard to elections, the question is like, do you change the rules midstream essentially, which is normally a big no, no. So we have these kind of routine ways of holding of conducting politics and my argument is kind of like some of these routines are not are, are not compatible with democratic values in this context and that we need to actually think more broadly than how things have always been done to uphold some critical values so i had suggested it would make sense for biden you know to provide an alternative perspective to some of the things going on in the administration that trump's press conferences had undermined a number of democratic values and that um, that elections need are going to require some bold and creative thought to hold under a pandemic to make sure everyone is is enfranchised. So that is kind of the trajectory of how I've been thinking about this set in my 
work at 538. So there's there's one more wrinkle. I've been thinking a lot about norms and norms transgression. And I wrote a piece at the Mistress of Faction about this. Where essentially, I argued we've, we've really got the norm story about the Trump presidency backwards. That a lot of things about his presidency have built on existing structures of, of power, right? When the pre- when this presidency has succeeded, it's been in ways that we would expect. The um, the Kavanaugh hearing, you know, I pointed out this isn't even the first justice in my lifetime to be appointed to the Supreme Court, despite credible accusations of sexual misconduct. That's just that's just a way that power structure works. Um, the tax bill which by all accounts privileged the needs and interests of wealthy Americans over pretty much everyone else, right? That's, that's a well-documented phenomenon in American politics. What really fuels the administration is not so much that they've disrupted norms and disrupted how we, you know, how power works in politics, but it's, it's the actual transgression itself, right? So the, the administration will do something and then their opponents, the media, Democrats freak out, you know, that's not, that's not how we do things here. You've violated an unwritten rule. And then the administration has shown they're not bound by the rules. And that politics is, I think, a lot of what fuels their support is this notion of, oh, you, you know, you triggered people, you're breaking all the rules. Well, you know, where in these deep and important ways where it might matter, they're not breaking the rules at all. So as I said, I've been thinking a lot about norms um, and kind of across different angles and across different kinds of political phenomena that we've seen. Well, I really want to encourage our listeners to take a look at these articles. I particularly like the one on the you just mentioned about Trump and the way in which norm violations fuels this politics of transgression. I think it was very, very insightful. And I'd like to dive into to all three of those pieces now with, with Lee and with you. And as we do that, we're going to talk about norms and democratic values, and we're going to talk about how we define them. We're going to ask questions about where they come from. We're going to ask whether or not they can change and, and what are the consequences when they do change? And are they ever in tension with one another, in conflict with each other? And then finally, I, I'd like to get to what we all think in terms of who or what is responsible for the present disruption, if you will in our norms, our political norms, and maybe even our underlying democratic values. So to kick that off, I just want to begin by asking, how should we define norms? How should we define democratic values? And what role do they play in our politics? Let me t- try to take a stab at this. Uh, you know, I mean, I think we also have to, to put rules in here as well, which are essentially codifications of norms, but maybe even following certain rules is a norm. I mean, norms is a hard concept, I think, because it seems to encompass a lot of things at a lot of levels. And, you know, as long as norms and rules and values are all aligned, there's not really a problem. But I think most of the time that these things kind of get out of whack a little bit uh, because norms and values are sort of constantly changing. So, I mean, I think values are constantly shifting and norms are, in some ways, you can think of them as codifications of yesterday's values. But, you know, I think we have to, in thinking about norms, there are a lot of different types of norms. So it doesn't matter that much if Trump doesn't attend the unveiling of Obama's uh, White House portrait, maybe not in of itself, but if it's part of a larger pattern of disrespect for legitimate opposition, then that's a problem. So when I think about this, I I think a lot about the the Levitsky-Ziblatt idea of there being these two master norms of democracy, of, of mutual toleration and forbearance. And mutual toleration is, you know, essentially respect for legitimate opposition, saying that we can have disagreements about who should be in power, but ultimately we accept that there is a legitimate opposition. There is another party or other parties uh, that are perfectly uh, patriotic and love the country and and just represent different viewpoints. Uh, And the idea of forbearance, which is that there are a bunch of things that one could do in power that one doesn't do just because 
to do those things just kind of fundamentally upsets the the whole shared agreement like you know stuff around how do you hold elections uh you know gerrymandering you know voter registration vote by mail right Any, anytime you're you're changing the playing field of democracy uh you know you're essentially uh, creating a, a moment of uncertainty and i think the the challenge with both of those concepts is i think they're intuitively you i i get them but i i find them incredibly fuzzy in that i don't know where to draw the lines political conflict is important but how much political conflict can you tolerate before you get into uh before you cross the lines before you violate forbearance before you violate mutual toleration i, I think these things are are hard to define so you know I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess that's why we have norms as opposed to rules, because we, you know, we can't codify them. So we have to just agree on them. I mean, I think the, the, the broader perspective when I think about all this is what are we, you know, what, what is the role of norms in a democracy? I mean, are they just things that are nice to have uh, or are they things that actually are crucial? And I think to the extent that they're crucial, it's that democracy self-governance is not a a, a self-sustaining thing it requires a, a broad commitment uh on all sides that the most important thing is to continue this process of self-governance and in order to do that we have to agree on a set of uh, you know, a set of processes uh, a set of rules and we have to accept the outcomes of those rules. So we can fight like hell, but at the end, we have to accept that certain you know, elections are legitimate. Votes in Congress are legitimate. Uh, and the problem is when you start changing too many of these norms and rules at once, and the stakes become incredibly high as they feel now, the whole thing kind of starts to collapse. So it sort of feels like you you know you need norms to maintain the game but if you have norms that aren't allowed to change things become rigid and i think that's one of the reasons that we're having this moment because a lot of the norms i think excluded a lot of people and preserved a lot of power in somewhat exclusive domains and when you open up the process or you people ask to be included or people feel like their voices are not being heard or you have somebody like trump who shows no respect for the process, you have a moment in which things become deeply unsettled. And I think all of those things are happening. And so I, I think this question of you know, what norms are important, what values are important, and at some level, what norms and values can we all agree on? Because it, you know, in order for self-governance to continue, we have to have some agreement on what is in bounds and what is out of bounds, otherwise, if there's no rules, then it's just chaos. And at some point, might has to make right. What do you say, Julia? Yeah, I want to riff on a couple of the things that Lee has said here, including the Levitsky and, and Zeblatt concept of forbearance, where they kind of, my understanding of how they define forbearance is this idea that you don't use all the institutional power at your disposal, right? That you, you know, as as president or as speaker of the house or whatever, you might have a certain amount of, of power specifically to undermine your opponents in different ways. Um, and that you just don't do that at every opportunity that you get. And that I think, so I think in some ways that's been useful to, to kind of talk about the difference between formal and informal powers. But at the same time, I think that it, it doesn't totally get the whole picture because it talks about the, it talks about the extent to which, individual actors use power, but not kind of the more nuanced nature of that use. So for example, I mean, again, to kind of riff on, on their, their book, How Democracies Die, they have some examples from some of the stuff that touches on our recent, uh, our recent populism episode of these emergent actors in places like, um, like Eastern Europe, who sort of failed to, re to respect institutions and legitimate opposition and kind of use the full extent of their power. Um, and you also see that with with the Trump administration, this sort of notion of like, here are things presidents always maybe kind of could do, but we all understood that they shouldn't do that. And here 
is the Trump administration doing that? And again, I would define this, at least in the U.S. context, as a is this is not about changing the nature of the power of the presidency so much as it is illustrating, you know, this is very discursive um, activity, right? It's illustrating that you're not bound by those um, by those informal norms and thus showing your power. But in the past, you have a lot of examples of more subtle use of this, right? So it's not like it's not like people in the political realm have never, you know, used the courts for political ends or done things to delegitimize their partisan opponents or to win against their opponents within their own parties, right? Politicians using the formal rules in innovative ways in order to win and where their goal is to win is not new. It is very standard in American politics. So I think we lose some of the nuance of like the nature of that. It's just that normally they don't advertise it. It's not part of the package. Like, oh, look, I exploited this rule about, you know, delegate seating to try and and uh, get myself or my preferred candidate nominated to the presidency or nominated at the state or local level. That's not part of the story. And for Trump and Trump type politics, in the U.S. context, it is very much part of the story. Um, it is very much showing that they have the power to violate that norm. And from there, I think there's there's kind of two core things that we don't think about in blunt enough terms in the norms discourse. And one of those is norms as, specifically as ways of limiting power. So some norms, as Lee alluded to, actually entrench power and give you know, preserve the power of the already powerful. And there have been a lot of critiques. I think um, Corey Robin at um, at CUNY has written some interesting critiques of this in the U.S. case as well, of how ways in which norms actually preserve slavery, um, Jim Crow, you know, things, things like that. And we can link to that in our notes also. So that's thinking about which norms actually limit power and which enhance it. And also, you know, who is the actor who enforces the norm, right? Who is enforcing the norm? And this is where I think we would benefit from clearer discourse about what's what's going on in the era of Trump, which is that there is a minority of voters in the electorate who not only don't want to sanction norm violation, but who to whom it appeals. And those people, by virtue of a variety of, you know, pieces of our system, the Electoral College, the structure of the Senate, the the fact that Trump is president, have kind of a, an advantage seat right now. And I think power and disproportionate to their numbers. So norms violations have become this tool of minoritarian politics. And in general, you have a majority of people, I think, who support a lot of these standard presidency limiting pro democracy kinds of norms um, who were in fact disempowered so there's a big question about who's doing the who's doing the enforcing and how much power you know do those enforcers have and if i can make one if i can make one final point absolutely um i actually want to link up to something you said james about norms being kind of in in flux all the time and the ways in which we talk about norm violations cuz another another norm i've been thinking a lot about in american politics right now has to do with the pursuit of the vice presidency we've heard a lot i think about particularly about how stacy abrams seems to be publicly running for for vice president for lack of a better word like we don't even really have terminology for this that's that's neutral on the one hand, it's a big norm violation to be publicly seeking the office of vice presidency and kind of lobbying the presumptive nominee to choose you. We see that as kind of a norm violation. On the other hand, it's also incredibly common. And it shows this very porous border between you know norm conformity and norm violation. That on the one hand, you have to kind of pay lip service to a norm, but then also it's like the reason this infor- informal rule is kind of because everybody knows that um, that this behavior takes place, right? This is, I think, social behavior is a lot more complicated and nuanced. And it's notable to me that while everybody does this, right, politicians are ambitious. And if they want to be selected as vice president, they're going to do things to put themselves at an advantage. But when Stacey Abrams does it, someone who 
pushes at the boundaries of people's understanding of who should be in power as a young African-American woman, then we start talking about norms. I don't, I don't have hard evidence that this is, you know, there's been more news articles about her pursuing the vice presidential nomination than say anything that, I don't know, Joe Lieberman might've done in 2000 or, um, you know, Paul Ryan in 2012 or whoever. Right. But these are, those are smart, ambitious politicians who knew how to play the game. And the fact that it's suddenly it's a norm violation when Stacey Abrams does it is not lost on me. Can I jump in? And I want to expand, Julia, on on something you said about the the broader historical context, you know, which is to say that a lot of the stuff that is happening, a lot of the contests for power that are happening now, uh, whether it's, you know, abuse of the executive office, I mean, certainly LBJ was, was, uh, and Nixon, you know, did a lot of stuff that I think we would consider pretty, pretty awful abusing their power. Um, you know, I mean, the fights over court packing or gerrymandering, I mean, that's like the entire 19th century. Um, you know, so I think, I mean, one way to, to think about the, the current moment, and I think it's important to think about the current moment uh, as well as it, it, a broader context, is that there was sort of a codification of a set of norms uh, around how you conduct presidency post-Watergate. And some of those were codified into rules. I mean, for example, we put in place the inspectors generals then, and now Trump is firing inspectors generals. You know, rules around campaign finance, which prior to that was completely unregulated, abuse of power, and also the sort of bipartisan consensus of the 60s, 70s, even 80s that has been unwinding. So that in some ways that, you know, it's it's the codification of a particular understanding of how government should conduct its business and that, you know, worked in a particular period, but as you know, you could think of it as that we evolved, democracy evolved to that point, or you can think of it as, you know, you can have evolution as not having a a direction, just a series of changes that kind of preserve an agreement after a moment of of catastrophe. And And I suspect after this moment of chaos, we'll see new norms emerge that reflect different values. But the question, and you know, I sort of want to ground this, like, what, what, is, what is a norm violation? Is the Kavanaugh appointment and, and uh, the, up, the stopping of Merrick Garland, is that a norm violation that really matters? Is the constant fights over voter ID and, and closing polling places and, and the sort of aggressive nature around election rules, is that a norm violation? Is what Trump's doing over vote by mail, is that a norm violation? Uh, I think it's, I, I, I want to ask both of you, like, which of these things should we consider to be norm violations and which of these things should we consider to be just part of the contest for power? Because I think it would, it would help me at least to kind of try to, to figure out, you know, where should I draw the boundaries? And also, you know, which of these are our values violations? Julia? I mean, I think there is, to me, it kind of doesn't matter what's a norm violation. It matters what's a democratic value violation. And I would put most of those in that in that category. Although I do, I take your point that there's a very fine line between what constitutes the the give and take of contesting for power, which is, I think, much uglier than it's typically portrayed in um, in our past. In the popular discussion about norms, you get a lot of kind of like in the past, everyone respected these informal rules and no one did anything dirty. And that's just not accurate at all. That's some mythology that needs to die. But on the other hand, I don't think that means anything goes. So I don't I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm going to pass to to James here cuz I think I've taken most of his talking time this time around. The way I think about norms is that they are meant to be violated. They are meant to be broken. Let me walk you through that for a second and I, and I think it'll help illuminate how I approach the question that you just asked Lee as well. If you think about say in the congressional context which is a, probably a little bit easier to wrap our heads around in terms of the role that norms play. But I do think that it plays the same role in other contexts as well, in the presidential context and the kind of electoral context. But you have the Constitution that provides these kind of framework uh, rules, if you will, the architecture. And then you have standing rules that the House and Senate vote on. They write down on paper. They say this 
is allowed, this isn't allowed, we have to do it this way. And those rules are very general. They have to be by the by nature, as well as the Constitution. You can't write everything out. And there are gaps there. There are ambiguities about what the rules allow. And the way in which, over time, people adjudicate those gaps and ambiguities, and they feel, fill them in with their behavior. Those then create these informal norms that people say we ought to follow. But again, norms in, in the congress, congressional context, we might refer to them sometimes as precedent, sometimes as traditions, but they're more flexible than the rules. And they're more flexible than the Constitution because you need to change how you do business and people are going to decide to do things differently over time. And as they do that, you can't change the rules all the time with every new in, in situation that arises. You can't change the constitution. That would undermine those, the kind of the authority that those um, sets of uh, procedures have. But you can change norms. That doesn't mean you ought to, but they are meant to be more flexible. When I think about values, I, I typically think that there is a plurality of values. And I'm not a relativist. I don't think they're all equal. But I think part of living in America is that you accept and acknowledge that all of us have a plurality of values. Now let's apply that to the political context and the democratic values that Julia's written about and that she discussed earlier. I think the, the categorical imperative, if you will, of our kind of politics, what we have to abide by in our system is that I understand why other people like you, Lee, may have different values than I do or may want to prioritize them differently. And I'm committed to living in a system that allows us both to do that. That's the categorical imperative of our politics, if you will. Now, the question is, well, what does that entail? What are those democratic values? Well, in terms of the mutual toleration, I think all that amounts to is just a commitment to resolve our disagreements via politics, not violence. And with regard to forbearance, I typically take a, a, an approach more along the lines of, I think, uh, Julia, and, and I probably differ from a lot of others. Like, I'm, I'm not even so sure I see or b believe in constitutional hardball is like a negative concept. As long as that hardball is playing out within the framework of the existing authorities and rules and structures, then it seems to me that that could be okay. I'm not sure using the Constitution undermines the Constitution. Of course, there may be bad things that happen. There may be bad policies that, that are allowed. Think segregation um, in the South for much of the 20th century and, and the 19th century after the Civil War. But it's through the act of politics, using norms and rules and contesting them and changing them that allows people to then make decisions to prohibit those things. And so I'm not sure that constitutional hardball, if you will, or using rules in a way that we don't approve is necessarily destructive or undermines things. So, you know, if you have the authority to oppose vote by mail, I, I support making it easier for people to vote. I don't think that's necessarily um, problematic because you have the authority to do it. I mean, I may disagree with it on a policy level and I may argue against it. Institutionally, I may say, I think this is a better way institutionally, but that takes place in a debate over whether or not that value ought to be that value. I don't think that the act of contesting or changing that, I mean, of using the power that you have to say we shouldn't have vote by mail or we should have vote by mail is in and of itself destructive. I don't know if that makes sense. I was kind of rambling there. But that's generally where I come down on this issue. I want to jump in on this, um, on the constitutional hardball and institutional frameworks point for a second. Um, because here I think that my perspective as someone who has mostly worked on the American presidency and the, the perspective of people who study Congress might be a little bit different. So within like within a congressional context, hardball makes perfect sense as a way to, you know, as a way to use, like I said, use the formal rules to your advantage. That makes sense also in an intra-party context in a lot of different ways. But the American presidency is structured very differently. Its formal strictures are very few, right? Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution is very sparse, and it doesn't have a lot of limitations. And so it's evolved from the beginning as a very norm-bound office, and that, as Lee points out, has become more and more important as the modern presidency has gained more and more power and become politically central. And I don't really know how to... It, within our existing frameworks of understanding how to limit the power of constitutional actors, how we treat the presidency as special and that you know, the presidency is more norm bound and more powerful and thus more important to, to have 
rules that limit that power than some of these other offices. And it's not to say they're not subject to, to norms, but that it's it's a different ballgame. But let me just jump in on that because I think I think the underlying dynamic is the same still. The norms themselves don't necessarily constrain people. Maybe they will over time as they acquire more and more, they get more and more sticky. They, they require more and more legitimacy and authority. But the presidency, yeah, it doesn't, it may not have a lot of limits in and of itself, but the Congress or the Supreme Court playing constitutional hardball limits what the presidency can do. The people via uh, civil disobedience through politics with a small p, think the civil rights movement, for instance, uh, they can help to um, put norms around of acceptable behavior around the presidency. And so the constitutional hardball is the way in which we get these inter- Uh, branch norms about what is and is not acceptable. I mean, maybe sometimes you get a president like Madison, who's presiding over the war of 1812, and he's probably the most libertarian president we've ever had then. You know, he prosecutes a war on American soil. He doesn't violate any civil liberties. He doesn't, you know, extend the power of the office in any way. But most of the time, presidents aren't going to self-limit their own power. It's the Congress or the people or the courts or somebody else outside of them who is imposing on them via using their own power in a game of constitutional hardball to to force these norms onto an unwilling president. I want to think a little bit more about this question of constitutional hardball. Uh, and and I, I want to really put it in terms of of values and think about what 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 is a sort of hierarchy of values. And you know, to me, the at the top of, of that hierarchy is the idea that democracy is the best system of governance and that we want to keep democracy going because the alternatives are are all much worse. And part of keeping democracy going is, to me at least, the idea that everybody who's participating feels like they have a fair shot at power and nobody is systematically disenfranchised. Minorities don't feel that they are excluded from power. And you know this gets back to the basic idea of Federalist Number 10 and the Framers, is that in order for a government to be legitimate, everybody, every faction has to feel like it can sometimes be in the majority and sometimes, you know, sometimes win. If democracy depends both on the winners and the losers. The winners have to make sure that the losers have a chance and the losers have to say, you know, I'm willing to participate because I think that I might have a chance of being a winner. And the problem to me with constitutional hardball is when the winners abuse their powers in a way that makes the losers feel that they will never get a chance to win. And that's the moment when democracy breaks down is when the losing side feels like, you know what, this is a totally rigged game and there's no way in which we can ever have our interests represented. And so, you know, we're just going to disengage, protest violently, try to overthrow the government, whatever it is. And, you know, that that is the moment in which democracy breaks down. So if we're thinking in terms of values, and I think that is a useful way to think, and thank you for that contribution to the discourse, Julia, then I think the values that we have to think about are the continuation of, of democracy. And if democracy depends on everybody feeling like they can legitimately participate and elections are free and fair and there's an opportunity to productively dissent and nobody is going to abuse their power to the point where others can't participate, then that becomes a fundamental value. And to the extent that norms contribute to that, great. But to the extent that norms undermine that, then those norms are undermining democracy. And, you know, I think that's that's where it's helpful to think about what are the norms that work with the fundamental values of democracy continuation. And I think those norms are, are worth preserving. That's a great segue, I think, into our the next question I'd like to tackle. And when we use words like abuse, for instance, uh, it's not entirely clear what constitutes an abuse, right? I think it depends on one's perspective. I think it may be a little bit easier, although there can be ambiguity here as well about what constitutes 
a breaking a rule, for instance. But that seems to be a little bit of an easier concept to wrap our heads around than say, abuse is a legitimate use of a rule and abuse or not. Well, it, it depends. And I think that's something that politics decides. And that I think begs or raises the question about where do norms and democratic values come from? You know, Isaiah Berlin observed that it, he says, quote, it's clear that the ability to recognize universal or almost universal values enters into our analysis of such fundamental concepts as man, rational, sane, natural. And I, I think he's right there. But, but what are those values? What are those norms? Who decides the specifics? Who decides what constitutes an abuse? Julia, what do you, what do you think? This has been a really challenging part of writing about this for me, because I think that on the one hand, we have a kind of, I mean, we have an extensive body of literature about democratic theory and what makes a democracy. And I also, I mean, I keep coming back to the notions of contestation and the notions of equality, but I'm honestly, you know, I'm not exactly sure how we think about what is the authoritative source of uh, of democratic values, or you brought up relativism earlier, kind of, you know, do the, are these things contextual? Are they universal? Um, I, I don't know. This is a long way of saying I don't know. And I think that Lee has brought up one that I hadn't, I hadn't thought about in these terms so much, but I think is important, which is the kind of continuity of, of democracy or continuity of, of contestation. One way I haven't really thought about norms is their sort of place in a the temporal dynamic of of democracy or the the notion that you could win next time and that the losers still have a stake in the game um i haven't totally brought those those concepts into anything that i've written so i'm you know in some ways i'm kind of winging it and in other ways i sort of feel like the instincts that <laughs> that i've used to write about core democratic values are built on you know reading a lot of democratic theory, much of which was was a long time ago in grad school and kind of observing how democracy works, reading comparative politics. But yeah, you know, I I don't know that I have an airtight answer to that to that question. What do you think, Lee? You know, I where do norms and democratic values come from? They evolve over time. You know, there, there was a time in which the idea of self-governance was a totally radical transgression. Uh, the, the, there was an idea of the natural right of, of power that came from kings and the idea that people should rule themselves, you know, was fundamentally norm breaking. And I think this gets back to Corey Robbins idea of, of democracy itself being a being a transgression against norms. But now now it's a norm. Uh, I, I think the idea that all men were created equal was uh, once a radical transgression. And frankly, also the idea that that statement actually meant all men and all women also was a transgression at one point. And now both are accepted as norms. So I'm not, you know, this, is, this gets into a very metaphysical discussion of what is truth. And, you know, the, the idea that I always come back to is truth is the thing that we can all agree about. Uh, norms is what we can all agree on. And when we have these moments in which we can agree, that's when norms break down. Uh, you know, I think this gets back to my obsession with hyperpartisanship, which is, you know, the problem that when everything is contested in this us against them, zero sum binary in which the stakes are made to feel impossibly high, it's very hard to have agreed upon norms or, you know, even maybe agreed upon values or at least a, a, an agreed upon higher hierarchy of, of values. And so at some point, you know, we need to find an agreement by which we can all exist peacefully or else the whole game is up. I mean, I, you know, I can think about this podcast as a microcosm in which, you know, we, we've never codified the rules of the podcast, but we have norms in which we are respectful to each other and we engage earnestly and, and honestly and let each other speak. If, if suddenly uh, I just shut down, you know, everything that, that, that both of you said and, and told you, that you know, I, I couldn't stand being on a podcast with you. We'd end this podcast very quickly. So, and and I love being on a podcast with you guys. So that's not an issue. But the end of democracy is a is a much bigger thing. And but in order to continue it, you know, we need to have some 
something that we can all agree by. So I guess norms are just the things that we can sort of all agree on. And when we can't agree on them, then, then they break down. I think you can have norms. As Lee mentions, they can come from lots of different places. The divine natural law or convention are typically the two bookends that we, we think about it. But is what comes out in Julia's pieces is that it, the importance of thinking about norms and the importance of thinking about democratic values and their relationship to one another, and just the importance of thought in general, which is uh, the kind of meta theme of this podcast as well. And incidentally, we should definitely have an episode, um, What is Truth, in the future. But just quickly here, I want to emphasize this importance of thinking, because thinking is hard, if not impossible, without preconceived standards. And norms and democratic values are themselves preconceived standards, admittedly standards that can change, but they're there. They are standards. And if you lack those standards, if you lack the ability to then think about them, what does that say about our capacity to judge, to evaluate? Right. And one of the things that worries me is that judgment is the unacknowledged casualty of the present moment in our politics. Because when we lack rules, when we see everything as a means to an end, where the rules don't mean what they once did, and everything is just rationalized to achieving our own end, whatever it may be, um, majority control, winning the presidency, who knows. But we then lack the ability to judge and to evaluate politics. And it does become a, a battle for, for strength. Um, and it's just the, you know, the strongest is going to win. And maybe that's by numbers, but in the end of the day, that's a fundamentally different um, activity, I think, than the kind of democratic politics that we've been talking about. But speaking of that, norms change, but uh, do democratic values change? Julia? As, as Lee pointed out before, democratic values do change, and they're also, they're also contextual. Um, and I think some of that is in this sort of push and pull around at the kind of boundaries of norms. Like I said, when we, you know, we have, as I mentioned earlier, with the vice presidential lobbying or vice presidential running kind of principle where we sort of observe a norm in the way that someone might violate it. And then we can sort of have a moment of evaluation about what that norm is really about. And I want to I want to actually take a second here to acknowledge that 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 idea is also something that comes out of my uh, 2012 perspectives on on politics piece on unwritten rules with my uh, my late co-author Jenny Smith. So you know much of what I've written about norms draws on that piece and draws on on her contributions to it. So I do want to um, take a second to acknowledge that. The other thing in thinking about this fuzziness or this the kind of fundamental question of how we define values and how they're contextual and ever-changing one thing that i've really taken out of this conversation is just how challenging it is to define what constitutes an abuse of power and what constitutes the kind of rough and tumble of of politics that to me seems like a really contextual question and one that is not just dependent on on time and place, but also that's dependent on the office or the institution that we're talking about. And that's where, you know, I was commenting about the presidency and how there's, I think, different principles that apply in terms of using norms to limit the presidency. I also think that this becomes very complicated very quickly when we talk about norm violations or, you know, we talked about incivility a couple weeks ago among people who hold power versus those who are who are out of power um but even when we talk about how those who hold power have have used that power have used the um have used the political process to consolidate power what is acceptable and what is over the line i think is is pretty unclear so i've completely dodged your question and that is my that is my non-answer lee uh, well, we, we have a norm on this podcast of, of being discursive and thinking out loud. Uh, so that's a good norm. I wouldn't want to change that. You know, I think, yeah, values are always changing. And I think values are always ahead of norms. I mean, norms are basically, uh, I've said this several times, I think norms are sort of the, the codification of a set of, of power relations that are basically a truce. And at some point, you know, that 
truce can break down. And, you know, I, I can think of several moments in American political history, a Revolutionary War, Jacksonian democracy, the Civil War, the Progressive Era, uh, the New Deal, the Civil Rights Revolution, in which, you know, an, an old truce, an old set of norms uh, and an old set of values was fundamentally shattered. And those were moments of transgression and I think mostly progress. And, you know, there's a there's a cyclicality to to this whole process of uh, norm codification and then norm transgression in which there's a moment of chaos and chaos usually doesn't last all that long because somebody steps into power and says, this is how things are going to be. And then everybody says, yeah, well, we, we should have some rules and some, some norms that we all agree on because chaos is terrible. And usually in these moments of, of uncertainty, there's a clear winner. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that makes this moment and this extended period challenging is that there, there isn't a clear winner who gets to impose a set of, of new norms. And what we have instead is this contest between two roughly equal partisan forces and so we're having this extended period in which nobody gets to win and nobody gets to uh, impose a, a truce. And, you know, this is, you know, if you think about the comparative literature on civil wars, civil wars go on a lot longer when both sides think they can win. So in some ways, this, this contradicts my previous point about the idea that democracy continues when both sides feel that they can win. And suggests that you know, in some ways, what what you need is one side to 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 dominate or a new consensus to dominate in order for new norms to form. But maybe thinking about it, it the problem is that we're thinking about it in terms of of zero sum partisanship as opposed to ideas or principles, uh, and that's undermining our ability to resolve a bunch of these disputes over norms. Is that? Is that it's not so much issues that are at stake, but it's it's just raw power. And when it's about raw power, there's no way to to find a resolution uh, because there's no substance to that. It's just about winning. I don't think that that's necessarily inconsistent with your earlier point because civil wars are violent conflicts, and the context in which we've been discussing norms and values relates to uh, political conflict and. And it's just fundamentally different. And conflict in both uh, spheres is fundamentally different. I, I think we typically think of it as a continuum, that if you have too much political conflict, then you're going to start fighting a war with each other. I, don't I, I think there's a conscious decision that people make to reject politics and embrace violence. But setting that aside, I do think that, that things clearly change. You all have... You both have said many of the, the brilliant and insightful things that I was going to say there. So I, I'd like to just head into our, our, our final question, final thoughts here, because I think we are running very short on time. But thinking about this moment in which we are currently situated and crisis is a, is a big part of changing norms. As James Madison says, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. And to that, I would add economic crashes, uh, natural disasters. Crisis has a way, and maybe, and this goes to Julia's earlier point of strengthening the presidency, the executive, and, and, and maybe the executive has a different relationship to norms than, than the other branches of government. And when you overlay our, no, our negative notion of constitutional hardball, it's harder to, to hem in the executive and, and to stop the executive from violating those norms and those values. But right now, given this, and we have this kind of problem of beginning new norms and this uncertainty and unsettling sense of what's happening, who or what is responsible, in your opinion, for the current weakening of, of our norms and values? And then looking forward uh, briefly, where do you think we're going? I mean, do, where what's you, what's your snapshot view of of the next couple of years in terms of our norms and values? I'll I'll go. Um, I mean, I, I don't think any one person is responsible. I think what's responsible is this incredibly close contest for power uh, at a time in which the parties are organized along racial, geographic, cultural lines, which has created a condition in which the stakes of elections have become incredibly high, and that's justified increasingly aggressive hardball tactics. 
uh, which the, I think the, the right has been particularly aggressive on, uh, but the left may catch up. And you know that this close contest for power at a moment in which it, it feels like the old rules and norms no longer work has just create this, created this moment of tremendous uncertainty. And values have certainly shifted. I think you know our, our values around uh, it, it, who gets included are, are shifting uh, in a in a quite profound way over the last several years. Uh, and you know, also the questions I think that are going to be much more salient in the next few years about economic justice uh, are also upending uh, norms. I think a lot of them have already been blown away in light of the financial collapse of, of 2008, 2009. So, you know, I think we got Trump at the moment that we did because of the way in, in which a lot of the status quo norms were not working for a lot of people. Uh, and at some point we would have had a, a disruptive president like Trump. Uh, as for the future, uh, you know, I, I think things could go in a lot of different directions as they often could in moments in which norms are unsettled. Uh, what I worry about is that the contest for power uh, is so binary and zero sum that it will be impossible to agree on a new set of, of norms and, and values that are broadly shared as legitimate. Uh, and that will spell the, the end of self-governance as we know it in the United States. Uh, I, I hope that's not the case, but I think it's important to think about what are the set of rules, set of norms, set of values that we can all collectively agree on and to try to hash those out in a way that, that allows us to continue uh, the ideal of an an inclusive participatory system of self-governance where everybody feels like they can legitimately participate. What do you think, Julia? Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, I share some of these concerns, I guess I have two things to say about this. One is I think what's responsible without particularly identifying any one specific actor, because I think this is a, a collective activity or collective failure is, you know, it, this is really our failure to, understand as a system what legitimate opposition and equality mean in a multi-ethnic multi-racial democracy that's the to me that's sort of the the crux of it and the second the second thing i think is that where i see us going in the future is actually away from what what lee described as this more competitive evenly matched two sides and into a period of minoritarian politics and politics in which a minority of voters, um, you know, the politicians representing that minority are going to increasingly try to consolidate their power. And that's, I think, that's really the transition to be made in our thinking as scholars of American politics is is from this um, polar, polarization to minoritarianism. And I think that that has different implications for um, some of the issues we've talked about, forbearance, constitutional hardball, uh, norms, and democratic values. As I read your articles, Julia, as I've listened to our discussion today about this subject, I, I recalled our prior discussions of populism uh, in our prior episode and its emphasis on popular grievances that are directed against the establishment, the system, and, and how it fuels these norms violations. And as I expressed in those episodes, I'm, I'm skeptical of blanket judgments of populism. Uh, they can be good or bad, in my opinion, just like norm violations and changing democratic values. And I think this discussion of norms and, and values that we've had helps me to better articulate why. That is, sometimes norms are outdated and sometimes they need to change and sometimes they shouldn't. But the people, the American people are ultimately the ones who decide which is which. And they do that via politics. And just like with any attempt to change an organization from the inside out, changing how we conduct our politics is it's not fun. The establishment will always react aggressively to any change whatsoever. It will often label such changes as highly dangerous and damaging to the future of our democratic republic. And it'll try to delegitimize the norm breaker. 
But as I said, as long as you're doing it within the framework of our constitution and the, and the system we have, um, it, I think it's okay. And in, in destroying norms, you replace them with new norms. In changing values, you replace them with new values. And if you think about, again, I go back to Congress like you go back to the presidency, Julia. It's where I do most of my work. But thinking about the Senate in the late 1950s and early 1960s, there were lots of norms that governed the institution in the, in the 1950s. Donald Matthews has documented this well in his terrific book, um, U.S. Senators in Their World. But by the mid-1960s, the outsider, the person who was a, a norm breaker, the, the illegitimate actor, if you will, had become the Senate's new insider. And the reason? Norms changed. And this is a critical point. And the sense of possibility because when norms change, we get the potential for big new legislation in Congress or other big initiatives. Think about, say, the New Deal and, and Franklin Roosevelt's um, executive branch uh, reforms elsewhere in the government that the previous norms-based system would not allow or the previous priorities that are democratic values in which we ordered them would not allow. And so people are, as Lee says, different forces are going to be responsible for changing norms at different points in time. But ultimately, I look at those moments in time as the potential for very good things to happen. It could go bad, badly, but I also think it could go very well. And as I always try to do, I like to end on an optimistic note. And so I, I think in this moment, looking forward, shaking my crystal ball, what comes next depends on what the American people and their elected officials do in government. That's all. The future's up for grabs. The question is, what's it going to look like? And that means that the people have to get out and engage in politics so that the world looks like what they want it to look like. But with that, I think we've had a, a fabulous discussion here. I know we've gone a little bit long here. I want to thank our listeners, uh, as always. Thank you for listening. And uh, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.